This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching in psychology. This episode continues the series previewing our upcoming APA Symposium on teaching contextually. Today we're talking with Erin Thrift about how she draws upon historical and theoretical context in teaching courses on career counseling. And just a heads up, had a few moments of bad connection on my Zoom recording, so I apologize for a few little breaks in the audio, but hopefully it'll work for you. All right, we have with us today our guest, Aaron Thrift, who is an instructor at Kwantlen Polytechnic University and a lecturer at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, both in British Columbia, Canada. And we've invited her to chat with us today about some of the courses she teaches in counseling psychology, and in particular, um, some of the critical perspectives or her, her approach to critical perspectives in those classes. Uh, thanks for being with us today, Aaron. Thanks for having me. And we have, of course, with us, as usual, Brady Wiggins and Josh Clegg. Thanks for being here, Josh and Brady. So, Aaron, if, if we could just ask you to, to give our audience a, kind of a taste of the courses that you, you teach, what types of courses, what kinds of students you have. Yeah, I teach in both, as you mentioned, in counseling psychology faculty. So they're, um, they're practically focused courses. There's, I teach both at an undergrad level. So the courses I teach for that are, are typically for students who are wanting to get into a graduate program in counseling psych. Uh, and then um, in the graduate program as well at SFU in counseling psych. So students who have been accepted to a graduate program. Most of my teaching, just kind of the way it's ended up has been in career counseling. I, I've taught the career um, counseling course at the undergrad and grad level for a number of years, but I teach other courses as well, theories of counseling, um, a course called self-psychology and education. Um, what else have I taught? Oh, the skills course for the graduate students recently. So a kind of a variety of courses for counselors. Yeah, a very uh, particular set of courses too that are in many ways more practical than some of the courses we might teach in psychology. One of the things we've been talking a lot about lately is the way that um, history plays a role in some of these non-history classes. I wonder if you could say a little something about the way that, that history might play a role in some of these classes that you teach. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting in counseling psych because counseling psych is in the faculty of education. So it's, but the people that tend to take these courses are psych students. But I think in, in like a psychology faculty, there's a his, often a history of psychology course. And in education, there would be a history of education course, but there's no history of counseling psychology course. It, it typically in any of the programs that I know of, any of the kind of practical um, graduate programs or in the undergrad. So it's up to instructors to integrate that into the field. And students often come into those courses, um, especially the grad courses, like, I want to know what to do with my clients. Like, I'm, I'm here, like, give me some skills. Like, what, like, I want to learn techniques kind of to do. So they're not um, super keen to learn about history always or don't understand the value of it. So I integrate that to my curriculum. You have like you have incredible power. You ought to know like some of the, the you ought to know where your field has come from, and you need to know the history of it. Um, 
so that you good very aware of some of the tendencies in the field uh, some of the ways that counseling and just psychological practice in general has um, been ethically questionable over time uh, some pitfalls you're likely to fall into uh, an awareness of your own culture and awareness of ethnocentrism in the field so I have a critical lens on the field and kind of at the end of my graduate work in counseling had a bit of a crisis where I thought, I don't think I want to do work in this field. Like I'm really concerned about some of the things I see um, and kind of came around that learning more about the history and talking to people that do counseling in different ways. Um, but I think that in integrating history into those courses, whether like the career course or uh, skills course helps just giving students that knowledge, I don't need to lay out my critical points. I, it just giving them the history helps them to be develop a critical lens. I don't, so I just having that knowledge, which they don't, they might not have. So uh, yeah, I, I tend to teach um, all of those courses as much as I can from looking at the kind of the historical trajectory and not in a way that's like progressive necessarily not like oh you know this is where we used to be and now we've gotten better and better and better and now look how great we are now but just looking at how the theories that have been popular at different times and the practices that are associated with those theories many of which we still use today um, have have reflected and reinforced kind of the cultural zeitgeist of the time and particularly um, how, uh, because it's very North American and we are in North America, looking at how shifts in liberalism have really um, influenced the counseling field and counseling has kind of helped to further those socio-political and economic aims and without a good awareness even, I don't think in the field that that is happening. So it's just the theories develop and practices develop and it's like, oh, this is the great, you know, the next great thing and we're cutting edge without an awareness of like, yeah, now, you know, funny, this sort of aligns really well with social liberalism or this really aligns super well with corporate America or aligns really well with this shift in neoliberalism. So I um, aim to help my students understand that the way that they operate is connected to these wider concerns. I'm curious, Erin, since your students do have kind of that practical impulse, um, do, do they seem to latch on to what you're teaching about history? Does it seem practical to them? Or do you feel like that that's something you have to get them on board with? Well, I, I, I mean, I, over years, this is the way I go in kind of through the back door. So I always teach, I say like practice is always related to theory. So we're going to learn about theory and then you will, and, and a practice, like a, I give them some practical tools as well that are related to the theory that we're studying, but theory doesn't come out of nowhere. Theory comes from this particular context. So if you're going to under, you know, I'll give you this practical tool, you have to understand the theoretical basis for it. And if you're going to understand the theory, you have to understand the context out of which that theory has evolved. So typically it's kind of like a, like, a, uh, you know, they're keen to learn the practical tool. And then over the semester, I, I think many of them become more interested in theory and then they become more interested in context um, as a result of that. I don't want to put you on the spot, so you can demur if you want uh, on this question, but would you have a few like um, 
specific examples of moments in a, in one of these classes where you introduce some kind of historical context that that helps to to create that kind of thoughtfulness that you're talking about yeah so okay so i can give you an example from the career course so career like uh, uh, right now so there's sort of various paradigms that the field is start, thought to have started in in the early 1900s with frank parsons and then evolved and um sort of paradigms that are really uh, co common right now are life design or broadly called like life design paradigms. And they um, fairly con uh, constructivist and constructionist and look at like, you know, we're in charge of our own stories and we live in this place of happenstance and chaos, but we have this ability to shape our lives. And uh, that requires certain skills like flexibility and optimism and risk-taking and um, so I, I teach that theory, I teach those theories. Now those theories happen to evolve in like the 1980s, 90s, early 2000s. So students often are, that's very appealing to them, especially after the, the paradigm, we've learned about paradigms that have been very linear, where it's like, this is the trajectory of your career. This is the way that you think about careers, you move through these linear stages. And so that's an earlier paradigm that was really popular kind of mid-century, really fits well with kind of, um, Think of like Mad Men as the example that I use. Like that, that TV show is like that. If you think of that career trajectory, that's like what what career counseling was in that era. So students have all sorts of issues. They don't see their lives reflected in that. And uh, I try to teach every theory like I really believe it, and then let them respond to it. So they respond like this doesn't fit for me. My career isn't linear. And then we come to this these um, life design theories, and they respond really positively. Like this, this it, it describes exactly how I feel my career. You know, I, I expect all these changes. I expect all these, um, you know, like it, it, I'm going to have to be flexible. I'm going to have to be optimistic. I'm going to have to be risk taking. I need to really get out there. Like I, I don't think I've done that enough. Da, 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 da. And then we, in, and then I introduce uh, in the next lecture, like, like the neoliberal frame and say like, huh, I wonder, you know, here's what neoliberalism is. And this is, and, um, and we, I also introduce some theories that look at more contextual factors. So at how marginalization, whether that's economic or identity based affects people's possibilities for uh, work opportunities, their aspirations their, um, you know, their ability to be flexible, who can take risks safely, who can't like because of the color of their skin, or if you're, you know, all your parents, friends are lawyers and doctors, oh, being flexible gives you the opportunity to work in a law firm, whereas somebody else might not have that. So then they, then they start to think like, oh, wow, like those theories that I, I thought, like I'm really being Kind of like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid there. Like that's, you know, really fits super well with neoliberalism. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it sure does. <laughs> because you're a pretty privileged group. So, you know, that you can be optim, you know, that your optimism can get you further in your career is is a marker of your own privilege that other people might not have. And this is something that, you know, it's just not even mentioned by that, those theories, but it happens to have come at a time when there was a big push for neoliberal uh, government in the 90s, um, 2000s, and presented work as this, um, you know, thing that you always had, the individual always had to work at, was responsible for. And if they weren't, they weren't doing well, then it was because they weren't flexible enough. They weren't taking enough risks. They weren't optimistic. They weren't taking advantage of, 
positive opportunities and generating them. So, um, and now actually, Josh, I kind of forget your question, but like, I, th I think that example, helping students to understand neoliberalism is, it, it, it really uh, is impactful because they get very excited by the rhetoric that is like, it just, it just resonates for them. They've grown up in that environment so much. And they're like, I need to, I need to be the one to make my career happen. And if it's not happening for me, like that's my own fault. I need to be more optimistic. And then when you introduce the context and the history and start to encourage them to think of like what's happening outside while these theories are developing, they're not bad theories in and of themselves. They're great. They have a, they have a purpose, but there's a significant, they don't draw any attention to the larger context or structural factors that influence people's opportunities in their working lives. Um, and so then they get all fired up about that typically. So, so the kind of ordering plays a big role in terms of um, kind of scaffolding them towards that uh, critical thinking. Yeah, the ordering, the ordering, the historical ordering is important. So I say this is going to, we're going to tell a story of how this field has developed. And they get very, and we do an activity every week that I, I you know, I teach a little bit about the context, I teach the theory, we do an activity. And then the next week is, a, is an implicit critique of that theory, because it's another theory, another era that tries to address the weaknesses of that particular approach. And, um, and so it layers, it, it layers on and it kind of culminates with uh, a socioeconomic, sociocultural and economic critique of kind of the whole field. Um, so it layers it on as I, it, I, I encourage them to kind of critique the different approaches that they encounter. And how explicit does that critique eventually get? Because you know, I can hear in your critique that sort of like architect of adjustment kind of, um, social science or side discipline professionals, you know, primarily serve the interests of large institutions and help you know, um, individuals sort of adjust to the status quo, right? Like mm -hmm. how explicit does that critique become in a, in a really practically oriented class like that? Is it more kind of in the background? You let them get there on their own or do you eventually like make an explicit critique like that? Uh, I eventually make an explicit critique kind of, um, but I don't, I, and partly, well, partly I make it, I mean, now I'm teaching online, so it's a bit weird. I don't get a chance to lecture um, as much. I record it, but they also, I encourage, I, I try to encourage them to make the critique before I launch into my diatribe about how this is wrong. So this, this is, uh, so I encourage, I try to, I try to help them come. Often now, an advantage is often we have um, international students and in recent classes I've had refugee claimants as well who very once the a little door is open to a critique they very strongly can come in with their own experiences and share how how that is this is an inaccurate way a very individualistic way of merit uh, um, where meritocracy is highlighted of thinking about career so that is their voices are very helpful in that critique I'm curious, I know in, in, in psychology undergraduate courses, there's oftentimes kind of a um, loosely set curriculum, you know, there'll be a textbook with the name of the course on it. Um, for, for, for this class that you're talking about, 
do you find that telling that story lines up with a particular curriculum that you're inheriting? Is this something that's really of your own design or, or is it just kind of a natural thing to bring this historical lens to what you're teaching? Um, I don't use a textbook. I use a compilation of articles for mm -hmm. a variety of reasons. Uh, one, because I think it better suits my sort of the story I want to tell over the course of the semester. Um, but also because they're so expensive and I just feel like it's, it's just, I don't want my students to have to pay 150 bucks for a text that they might never use again. So I, I look for only free um, sources for them to use. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, but the, the way that theories are often presented is in that historical trajectory anyway. So if you just under, but what's not included in those textbooks often, I often use chapters from textbooks that are free that our university has online, is just that larger contextual critique, like a mm -hmm. larger understanding of kind of um, the evolution of liberalism, for example, in North America over the last 100 years. And that's not the purpose of the course, but it, it does give students a particular language. And some students really grasp onto that and other students don't. Certainly at a graduate level, students get very interested. They were not, you know, they, they kind of dread, like I joke that in counseling psych is like the, one prof described it to me as the psychology's poor cousin when I was aiming for that field and said like, why would you want to study that? And like, just go into clinical psych, that's where it's at. But, and then within counseling psych, career is like the lowest, the least sexy of the specialties. Like, you know, if you're really gonna make something of yourself, you go into trauma or family or, you know, not career. Um, so students take the course because they have to, or someone told them to, they're typically not excited about it. I quickly just use, change it to the term working life. I talk, I don't talk about the term career. I think it's problematic for lots of reasons. So we just talk about work life in general. And then, uh, at the grad level, we can get much, students get, um, very excited about it typically to think about their own working life, other people's working life, talk about how clients. No, no matter what client you have, they're going to work in some capacity, paid or unpaid, they're going to work. So you, you know, they may or may not have trauma, they may or may not have family conflict, but they're going to work. So they become interested, but so it doesn't, um, yeah, it, it's, it's curriculum that I've developed because nothing has suited, like I haven't found books that have suited that. Yeah, and I'm struck by just the narrative quality of what you've presented to us. Um, it makes sense to me that that's something that students could latch on to and get excited about, um, maybe even ways they wouldn't have anticipated before they took the course. Um, it, it's, it, I don't know, that, that's kind of one of my working theories right now is that like when we can, when we can grasp the story of the thing that we're learning about, then um, it, it becomes much more vivid and relevant. We can see the connections to the things that matter to us. Yeah, I think telling that story, like tell, trying to um, tell that story is, is a, make that makes it vivid for students. And it's one of the things I, like I got quite excited about theories because I had a very brilliant theories instructor in counseling psych who every week would kind of tell the theory of a, or tell the story of a theory. And you were like, oh, like you didn't know, we were all guessing like, is he Rogerian? Is he a behaviorist? Because he was so good at kind of embodying that perspective. 
And um, it was really impactful for me. We never, you know, we never, I didn't know until much later that he was narrative systems guy because he didn't, he didn't tell us what his, what his approach was. He just, he just lectured on this and from this like embodied Rogers, embodied Freud, uh, told us the best things about those theories and then let us come to the critique through other perspectives. Aaron, you've mentioned uh, some of the effects that these things have had on students in the classroom. Do you, do you um, what kind of, what, what do you hope you accomplish outside of the classroom? What do you hope to see? I mean, I, I guess I'm not sure how to ask this question, but thinking about your students leaving your classroom and graduating and becoming counselors, um, do you think about your curriculum and, and how you hope it affects them long-term and how you hope it affects their, their counseling? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think what I hope for them is that they have a, a good appreciation of structural factors that impact their clients' lives and can draw a connection between the stories that they hear in the counseling room and structures of oppression or power outside of the room. And then I think counselors and psychologists are, power, are a powerful group together and they can use that to help address injustices at, at a um, more structural level. Rather than limiting, I feel like counselors often limit their view to like this person in front of me. And especially in working life, I feel like that is a very limited perspective. So one of the assignments I give in, my, in the grad class is that they, uh, they have an option. They can help somebody who um, develop a resume. Like, so they, somebody that's in need of a resume, a kid coming out of high school or, uh, you know, um, many of students have talked to mothers who are going back to the workforce, or they can do some sort of justice project where, so I help them to think about counseling both as an individual level and, or a structural level. And a justice project is think about some sort of injustice that their clients would encounter in work. So for new migrants, for example, or, and then take some sort of advocacy step towards it. They don't have, they won't solve it on their own, but I want them to tell me about what it is. And then to think about, you know, like I had students write letters to their MP or uh, member of parliament so, or um, uh, get involved with different nonprofit organizations and say, I'm a counselor. Can I, can I help with, you know, um, orienting new refugees to working life in Canada or, you know, different things like that. So they, I, I just want them to make the, the message often in the career course in particular is, I don't have an answer for this, is how to, how to work as a counselor without individualizing what are better understood as sociopolitical and economic issues. The origin of the issue that you often see is not a, uh, is, is a larger issue than just this person. And, but by working, you know, like by teaching the person that the skills to be optimistic, flexible, et cetera, how do you, how do you help that individual in front of you in the room without making it seem like it's an individual problem, still keeping your mind on, you know, on the structural issue that's behind it. So, and we just wrestle with that together throughout the semester at the grad level. Like how, like, how do you do that? Is there a way of doing that? Is there not? Like is by, ver the, is the field by virtue of being focused on individuals uh, individualizing in a larger sense or is there a way of being able to work in the field 
and really help people that desperately need help that can help individuals understand their lives as connect, like interconnected to other people and systems around them. That's really interesting because I, I, um, I guess even as I'm listening to you talk, I've thought of, you know, students who are motivated to go into, we have a lot of students who graduate into counseling programs. And, and I guess I am under this kind of illusion that counseling psychology itself is kind of an inherently ethical pursuit, right? Because your motive is for the sake of the client or whatever. Um, but, but what I'm hearing is it, it isn't really inherently, there are all sorts of problems you can get into. This is, it's funny now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm realizing how naive I am about this, but I think it's really interesting that you're having to have these conversations with, with people whose motives are generally for the well-being of others and having to get them to consider, um, whether, um, that motive is, is, I mean, obviously that motive isn't enough. You have to be really mindful about how you approach a person. Um, and bringing that history in is, is, and that context in is a really important part of that. I wonder if, if there are any like kind of moments or, or things that you do in the classroom that lead to that kind of context that you and Joe have been talking about, like that, that, that particularly really are, are specific moments where students' eyes are, are really opened or that it really is transformative for them. Like you mentioned that, that professor who sort of embodied the, the theories, you know, like I, I think of in some of the classes I teach, I know there are certain things I do that are going to create moments like that, that that suddenly open students' eyes to context. Like, like for example, in my history class, I have them name every psychologist they can think of in, on the first day of class. And then I go through and ask them to name the you know, race, ethnicity, gender, you know, and, and nationality of each of the people they listed. Then we do it again at the end. Hmm. And that exercise really like flips their minds, you know, like it, it really, shows them in a very clear way something I try to teach them all semester, which is the way that, you know, his, history is biased and history is, you know, shaped by particular interests and so on. So are there, are there like moments in these courses that, that kind of do that sort of thing for your students in particular? Yeah, so I've, I mean, I've been online now for a year, like, so I'm, <laughs> it's kind of a weird, I don't see them uh, but there's there's actually a few um, like invariably when we get invariably when we get to two units like there's one on looking at career so we start with careers kind of like making a choice of finding a work that uh, uh, our theory that look encourages you to find something that fits with you and um, like a personality test type of approach and they are keen on that and then the next unit is on looking at career more or working life as it affects different roles and i show a documentary on um called the motherload on the impact of of um, motherhood on people's careers and that's uh mo i would say 80 to 90 percent of my students are all women in my class and that that documentary is really impactful for them 
they want to, I, they ended up doing, they do a project in the course and many of them do it on like women's mental health and career, or, um, just looking at the, like the impact of the double shift and the glass ceiling and um, uh, even, not even just women compared like the impact of gender, but the impact of motherhood and being a parent on working life. So it's a good documentary. Um, that so that is very impactful often for students that documentary and has continued to be through the pandemic and then there's another little video i show on neoliberalism as a water balloon that is a good explanation of neoliberalism just really simply on vimeo by tim mccaskill and that for a lot of students actually is really impactful as well to think about like to just this this thought of like huh my work like everything I thought about work is like in this larger system that's affected by what's around me. And that's, so that little video, those two videos actually are, are impactful often for students. And just in terms of, um, they come in often with this language of really, they're all, well, in, this is in the undergrad course. They're all wound up with trying to get into counseling psych. So they're often students, they're like working, they're volunteering, they're taking, all these courses, they're in an honors thesis program, they volunteer in labs, they're like uh, uptight, you know, in terms of like, I got to get into this program, there's no other way. And then to under, to, to kind of understand that, how they've come to see their life in that particular way. And they have this language of responsabilization, I'm responsible for this, and I need to work harder. And I need, and to, to understand that is impactful for them quite often. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it'd be really interesting to ha help students plot their, you know, I know that you um, and Jeff wrote about kind of neoliberal time. It'd be interesting to have them plot their kind of how they are, um, you know, distributed inside of neoliberal time and, and mm. how that, I would, I would imagine that in the context of, you know, career type counseling, that would be a particularly, um, momentous analysis to do like the way that they are caught inside as we all are caught inside neoliberal time yeah i think they i i think they they have seen this as kind of their burden they're often it's also they're coming to the end of their degree and so they're really wound up about like what they're going to do afterwards and then to kind of um give them a new language or a new way of thinking about it in terms of uh, that that seems to be fairly impactful for students to to analyze that, and I don't think that that is something that is like if they went to a career coach or a career counselor. I don't think you get that type of critique often from counselor career counselors. You know, I used uh, I've used some of those ideas um, on neoliberal time in my research methods course in a kind of a a, 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 a small way, but one of the exercises I have them do is I. I have them think through like a thesis project and like plan out in real detail all the things they have to do and how long it's gonna take and when the due dates are and all that sort of thing. And then I have them think a bit about, I have them reflect about what their priorities are. Like what are the things that matter the most to you in this research and just in general? And then I say, okay, to do your values, are they reflected in the way that you've organized your thesis? It's just a tiny little thing, but you know, very often students will have a little aha moment there, like, oh yeah, I'm, mm. I, I am reflecting the values of, 
of an institution, a set of institutions and not really my own when I'm doing all this planning. Mm -hmm. you, and you know, it's so I, hard to get out of that. Sorry, go ahead, Brady. Oh, I was just gonna say that I, that really, I think gets at where my textbook question was coming from, because I think it's the same thing that we experience as teachers, you know, that we are part of these systems that if, if we're not conscious of it, are going to be pushing us toward working in a particular way, teaching particular things in particular ways. Um, and um, I, I get the sense, Aaron, that you've had to do that same type of deliberate work that you're encouraging your students to do around career, um, just even with how you teach this class. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you see it that way and like what, what kind of additional effort that might take to teach a class the way that you're doing it here. Yeah, I've done it. I mean, I've taught in various position sessional, like as a sessional for years and years. So I, I forget, you forget about, and when you're working, going to grad school, I was just grateful for a job. And now that I'm graduate, you know, I'm more conscious of like, huh, I do a lot of free labor, <laughs> like a lot of free labor in prepping for, you know, pr prepping courses, often on very short notice, like, you know, can you teach this course next week, someone's sick or on medical leave. And I'm just grateful for a job. Sure, I can teach whatever, you know, I, I can just put my life on hold and I'll just do this. Um, uh, there is, we, in, especially in the grad class, we look a lot at the precariat. I realize I've been like fully part of the precariat for years and years and years. And um, just the impact of that on academics, on having to uh, do that. It, it, things like, you know, things like extra prep time because court textbooks are so expensive. Like I, like I do, I, so I, that's time taken to, to, to look for articles, to read them. It would be much easier to, do, to, to read a bunch of stuff and put it into a lecture that could have been there in a textbook. Um, I don't want my students to have to pay that money, but I don't, so that's my, my time that is going into that. I don't get compensated for that time. Um, there, we, one of the critiques in one of the articles that I've sometimes assigned, but it's a little hard for the, it's a little bit hard for an undergraduate article, looks at, uh, I think it's from sociology, the shift from a focus on employment to a focus on employability and how people have taken, individuals have taken that on to make them keep themselves always employable. So they do all this upgrading of skills um, and do, and I've certainly felt that as a grad student who, you know, delayed my graduate work until after I had kids. And so just to be employable, like to have my research be up to date or to publish or to do all go to conferences on my own dime, like to be continue to be employable, as opposed to just having employment and then the employer taking some responsibility for that. So I didn't ever have professional development funds. I just, you know, did pay like that was all just self financed. And I was lucky to be in a position to do that. But um, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like, I live out like some of that critique and that academic critique in terms of like high numbers of precarious labor, um, a real impact on work-life balance. Uh, and I think students see that often in faculty too. Like I, I see my students in that, I remember teaching once at a grad course and students had never had a course in this graduate course program from a regular faculty member. It had all been one session after another. 
And that like really impacts your graduate life. So they couldn't find supervisors for their, mm -hmm. because they didn't know anybody. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's a critique of that's precarity. So we write, we read something from Bourdieu, like to understand you're caught in this precarious system. The university is not exempt from this. There's, you know, wage differentials on a gender and race level within a university. No question. Like here's the data on that. So I didn't, you can kind of, yeah, do your own. We're caught within that as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really striking how, um, I mean, not that you, you can get caught in all of this without trying to teach critically and bring in some of these historical and theoretical perspectives, but it seems like that much more so um, if what you're doing is challenging the system, um, it, it really does, uh, create a whole, a whole lot of work. And um, there's, there's a lot of potential for being punished along the way to, to make some of these things happen. Yes, I've kind of, I should probably be careful what I say given it's being recorded, but that there's this, there's this real push in one institution towards um, micro-credentials that are um, badges to mm -hmm. develop like you know so to have students on top of the courses they're taking take these other badges or micro credentials and that's like a very big seems like a, a new thing and so that I, I i feel like i got i mean i just i'm like hugely critical of that i teach against that like that this sort of like focus on helping like we're going to charge students to take these micro credentials rather than just giving them like a good uh good academic courses. They're already having trouble keeping up with like the reading and the assignments that I give. And now we're gonna say like, oh, and can you also take like this little, you know, this pay to take this course on time management or, you know, whatever. And you can have it as a badge as addition to your degree. Why not just offer a good solid degree? I don't know. That's a, that's a good way of making money, right? Well, that's it exactly. <laughs> uh, that's not the rhetoric, it's, you know, it's come like the, the rhetoric is about like, oh, good, good, good critical thinkers, I think make them more employable or industry wants this. So, you know, it's, um, it, it will be really helpful to our students. It's kind of overlaid with a bit of a justice perspective of like, we can offer this to all our students and make them really competitive with all, you know, alternative institutions. I guess, yeah, maybe there'll be some discussion hours connected to it, so. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.